it took me probably about 35 minutes to say that, and Rachel summed it up so well in two. See, Rachel should have done the preaching last week, not me. You can sum up again next week, Rachel. It helped me, and I'm sure it helped a lot of other people. Great job. Okay. Well, we will carry on. I actually bought my real Bible today. I picked it up from the lounge room, and it had dust on it. Isn't that shocking? But I have been reading an electronic one, I promise you. So anyway, it's nice to have it here. It's like bringing an old friend. So uh, what I want to do now that Rachel's given such a great recap is just say that the God-proclaimed goodness of creation has not been destroyed by evil. Evil is like a parasite on a tree. The tree is good and strong and healthy. The the parasite gets on it as an overlay. Now, if all the feed and that goes into the parasite, it will ultimately damage the tree. But the substance of the tree is not changed by evil. And so, as Ben reminded me last week, as uh, when I finished the message of the great statement in Isaiah 9 verse 7, which says there will be no end to the increase of his government. It never ended. He established it 2,000 years ago and turned it over to us in Christ. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on, that's Calvary, from then on forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I mean, when God makes a statement like that, please don't think there's any power that can stand in front of him and stop it happening. Please don't think that. There's nothing in Scripture that teaches us that. And there's no better time than today for us to remind one another as God's church of this. The enemy is not winning. He was defeated 2,000 years ago. There is nothing left to be done except the final appropriation of what has taken place and we're meant to be a major part of that expression as God's church today on this earth. That's our calling. See, we do have a calling in Christ to achieve. Every one of us as individuals and us here as the Christian fellowship in Upper Heart, his biblical community. And we only get an allocation of so many years on this earth to achieve that, you and I. See, it's, our salvation's not at stake here. Life is not about salvation. The purpose of life is to get to know Christ. I do a lot of study and reading and research, and I love to preach. And God's been gracious to me in the opportunities that I get to do that. But if I wasn't preaching, if I had no form of expression anywhere, would I still do it? Yes. Why? Because my ultimate purpose of what I'm doing and all of that is to get to know Jesus better. Because I'm going to be with him for all of eternity. And with you guys. For all of eternity. Now, I'm thrilled about that. 
So the purpose of whatever I do is because in my heart I love Jesus and I want to get to know him better. That's what we're here for. God and his purposes will be achieved on this earth. We have just been given the privilege over a short space of time, three score plus ten if you like, to work with him in doing that. See, our gospel, this, has the power to create societies that are based on freedom as founded in Jesus Christ. It does. Do you know why the Western world has been so blessed since the Reformation? Primarily because of this. It established its societies and its justice system and its work system and its system of economics and so many other things basically on the Westminster Confession which was taken directly from the Word of God. There is the history of the Western society. Now, from the 1920s on, that started to change. And from the 1920s on, the blessing of God started to change on Western society. And it's all up for grabs right now. We need to understand why all the elements and people and cultures who want to attack and destroy the Western society will go and live there at a heartbeat if they get an opportunity because it provides the best way of life. Why? Because we're God's clever chosen people? No, because we, America, Canada, England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, New Zealand, Australia, we can go through it, decided 500 years ago to build our societies on the basis of the word of God. And although so many people don't know Jesus, the blessing of God flows where his word has freedom and expression. Can't help it. We can do it right here, right now. In fact, that's what we are commissioned to do. See, please hear this. Free societies like we have all enjoyed basically for 500 years don't fall out of the sky from heaven. They are born within the hearts of people who fear God and they're grounded in biblical principles. And these biblical principles are designed to work generationally because God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and out of that is born Joseph. And we can get into all the typology, and I don't need to go there, because if you don't think this applies, which starts in Genesis 12 to us today, read Galatians 3. It's spelt out very clearly there that God is still working off this plan today. So what can we do? Let's get down to the ground floor. We can become, we, right here, CFUH, we can become an example of the society that we want to create. We can build it right here. We need to fix the vision in our heart and begin to outwork it in our lives as individuals, our lives as family, and our lives as this Christian community named the Christian Fellowship in Upper Hutt. Because it goes like this, individual, family, community, and that affects the nation. That's how it works. 
in the Great Commission, which is a whole message in itself, where it deserves at least a whole lesson in itself, which I can't do today. But it's Matthew 28, 18 to 20. It says this. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me. Not one day I'm going to have it. Not I'm looking forward to it one day. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. We need to get that into our heart right there. Go therefore, he says to us, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what does this mean? Well, at the risk of damaging this, I want to narrow it down to two simple things for the sake of today. How do we disciple nations? Simply by overwhelming them with the nature and character of God as expressed through our lives. That's how we disciple nations. We demonstrate the way God intended us to live and it flows out of us, not just here. This isn't the house of God. You are as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not just here, but everywhere we go. Secondly, how do we teach them to be obedient to all that Christ has commanded them? Transforming them, to re- we transform them to reflect the truth, goodness, and beauty of God's kingdom as seen in our lives. See, in light of all of the so called events that are happening in the world today, how can I believe this can happen? Simply for this God tells us that right here, right now, That is what he is doing. He's been doing it since Genesis 3. And he's not going to stop until the end in Revelation 22. And he is doing it right now. And our goal, and this is what we need to hear, our goal is not to judge God's progress. Our God is to get alongside of him and the power of the Holy Spirit and work with him in expressing what he is about. That's our goal. You and I have no way, and nor do all the so-called stuff that's coming across television and on the internet, we have no way to assess how God is really doing, and he is never going to be judged by us. And as we talked about last week in Habakkuk, all the Old Testament prophets, when they had an encounter with God, were stunned because they said, this isn't working out like I thought. You're not doing what we told you. You're not even who I thought you were. How dare we assess how well God is doing on this earth? He's spoken what he's going to do, and it will happen. We have to line up with him. Here's what we have to do. Hebrews 12, 2 to 3. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, enduring the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, verse 3, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. All over the internet is the testimony of people who love Jesus 
who have grown weary and lost heart and are saying, we're just longing to God to rapture us out of here. See, we know the end of this glorious story. God wins. He was never losing. He has never held his head in his hands. And so it says in Acts 13, 36, that David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. We need to serve the purpose of God in this generation, and then ultimately we will fall asleep. And we don't get a second chance then. So what's the purpose of God in our generation? Well, right now, 2015, one of the purposes is we're called to war. Why? Because war has been declared on the nations and the moral vision of the West. And before we start looking at who the enemy is, a lot of the war declared is from within the church. The issues of morality, the issues of is it fashionable today for a couple who love one another and love Jesus to sleep together before marriage, to have sex, for all of those stuff. Those issues are being held up in the church for debate. So the moral vision that was established in the West through the word of God is up for huge challenge and a lot of that challenge is coming from the people of God. So what should we do? Well, I want to read you a quote. You cannot fight something with nothing. Nothing is what the Western civilization is increasingly being built upon. It has come about, it's come to be about personal comfort, increasing consumption, tolerance, and stimulating entertainment. These values qualify as conveniences, brothers and sisters, not convictions. Many of our opponents have convictions. Wrongly, yes. Misguided, yes. Demonically inspired, yes. But they are convictions they are prepared to die for. We have a whole teaching of God's word and God's ways that we're spending so much time challenging and debating because it takes away selfish pleasure that we want to indulge in. Carry on reading. The good news is that God's spirit is arousing globally a measure of concerned citizens. Some of them are Christians and some of them are not. Our situation, friends, is simply this. What are we going to do in this defining hour that is God-driven and strategically viable? The author of that statement was Dennis Peacock. See, as God's church, we need to speak the truth to lies. We need to create beauty in a society that is becoming increasingly ugly and vulgar. Some friends of mine that are working with us in Australia told me today their daughter has just started university. The lecturers publicly lecturing use the F word frequently. 
How did I, you would have been expelled as a lecturer from university ten years ago to do that? How did we get that? And by the way, don't think the F word and all Satan's great language is not flowing around all over the body of Christ because it is. It is. And we think it's fine. Well, some people do. We need to create beauty in a society that is increasingly ugly and vulgar. We need to be and to do good and to challenge evil and injustice. Now, listen to me. If you don't want to fight, that's fine. Not everybody is a warrior. Not everybody wants confrontation and likes to get into the middle of the fray. So here, I'll give you a good strategy. If you don't want to fight, do this. Be pleasing, polite, well-mannered, hospitable, and do acts of kindness. Right there is a lifetime calling that will change the world around you. And this book says... It is more powerful than violence and killing people. It has more power to change society right there than violence and killing people. See, Micah 6 verse 8 gives us a wonderful formula. He just simply urges to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. That'll work, folks. That'll work. Just do that. Change the society within a year, if we just do that. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. That'll work. Great. Prayer, of course, is another major issue. See, we need to understand this. No enemy on this earth today believes that they can overcome the superpowers, US, China, Russia, with head-to-head war. No one today is that stupid but they've worked out they don't need to. One of the weapons the jihadists use is fear. Why do they use fear? Because they know that fear paralyzes. Tragically, that's what so many Christians are doing today. It's all over the internet. It's coming into your lounge rooms if you listen to a lot of Christian preaching. We're creating fear which paralyzes the body of Christ. We're telling people nuclear holocaust is coming. We're telling people that evil is running rampantly. A very prominent preacher who, I won't go there, I nearly said, but anyway, let's not. A very prominent preacher made a comment the other day that the Antichrist is already alive and walking on this earth. And we go, whoa, whoa. Hey, brothers and sisters, that's not new. In the early 80s, a prominent preacher worked out Henry Kissinger's name, adds up to 666, said he was the Antichrist, explained why, wrote a book on it and sent it to him. Well, dear old Henry, he's 94 years of age now. I watched him on TV the other day, still plodding along. I don't think he's too much threat to society, but maybe I'm wrong. It's stupidity that we do these things. So what we're telling people is that the mark is about to happen and this is going on and that's going on. And do you know what? Historians and various people that know these things, when we tell them that the mark's going on and that's the only way you're going to trade, they say, oh my gosh, do you realize that only one third of the people in this world have bank accounts and currency? The rest of them are on a barter system. How do you bring the mark into that? 
Oh, gee, I don't know. It just says in Revelation 13 that, see, we're not even coherent with the planet and making our statements like that. You can get this information off the internet. Look it up and come back and tell me I'm wrong, but I've already done it. Only one-third of the people on this earth have any money at all. They don't use money to trade. They don't have any. So what does God say about all of this? He says this, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. See, God gets angry when we say conspiracies are going on and Satan's this and Satan's that. Why does God get angry? Because we're telling him he is not in control. We're telling him he has been deceived or he's done a poor job or Satan's running rampant and God is sitting there on the throne saying, oh my gosh, I never saw this coming. What on earth am I going to do? Well, way back in Psalm 2, he said this. Why are the nations in an uproar? And I'm asking you that question. And why is the church in an uproar and full of fear? And people devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Now listen. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his fury, in his anger, and terrify them with his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have forgotten you. When did he say that, brothers and sisters? He said that at Jesus' first coming. And the Lord looks at what is going on in the earth today and he says, I have installed my king. He rules, he reigns, he knows where this thing is going. He is in control, he is making it happen. And he defeated the enemy 2,000 years ago. Why? Because an enemy was a threat to him? Absolutely not and never. He defeated him so that you and I as God's people would take his authority and rise up and transform this planet. He did not defeat Satan for his own behalf. He was never threatened by him, never has been, never will be. He defeated him for you and me to take up his authority. See, God didn't laugh for long. He wasn't amused. He put his king on this earth. And what does the king do? In Psalm 110, verse 2 to 3, it says the king, this is King Jesus, stretches forth his scepter across the earth. Who is his scepter? Take a look in the mirror and you'll see it. It's you. 
His scepter is everybody in Christ. His scepter is this church. And he's saying, get out into this so-called darkness and bring light and transform this nation in the way I intended it to be. I empowered you for that 2,000 years ago. Go and do it. I want to finish with an end times mantra that I'm going to go through. It's not mine. Chris Lotton, who's a friend of mine, put it up on his website. We'll put it up on this website. I've just got to get all his details and make sure it's okay. And I have added the scriptures to it. So here we go. I think it'll come up behind me. I have lived this mantra for over 30 years. Me and my family. It's served us well. I will not embrace an end-time worldview that re-empowers a disempowered devil. Hebrews 2.14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death, this is Jesus, on our behalf, he might render powerless... Him who had the power of death, that is the devil. He did that 2,000 years ago. That's got to be good news. I will not accept an eschatology that takes away my children's future and creates mindsets that undermine the mentality of leaving a legacy. All the way back in Genesis 12, and then Genesis 18 and 19, God says, not only must you take what I've given you, you must bring it through your children, and through your children's children. And I went after my kids from as long as they were young enough to understand who Jesus was, and invested it in them, and now I'm going after my grandchildren, and spending time with them on on a weekly basis, normally investing it in them as well. Now, if Jesus comes in the middle, so be it. It's going to be set for eternity anyway. We need to work generationally. We're not here long enough on this earth to fulfill God's calling on our life in one lifetime. So we invest it into our children and our children's children. Next point. I will not tolerate any theology that sabotages the clear command of Jesus to make disciples of all nations and the Lord's prayer that earth would be like heaven. When Jesus came the first time, he connected heaven and earth together. If he didn't, it was futile that he told us in Matthew 6 to pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Do you think he told us to pray that way for another age somewhere off in the future that's going to come when we're all raptured out of here? He would be wasting his time. Yet he urged us to pray that way. Next point. I will not allow any interpretation of the scriptures that destroys hope for the nations and undermines our command to restore ruined cities. 
When I left the service station, 1990, and I've been traveling constantly, teaching and preaching ever since, God put Isaiah 58 verse 12 on my heart, that we will restore the ancient ruins, that we will raise up the age-old foundations. Who wants to see that done in society today? Who longs for that? Brothers and sisters, that's what we are empowered to do. That's our calling. Jesus isn't going to come and do it. We had a meeting here in 2011. We didn't put it on. But a prominent speaker came from overseas and we filled this auditorium. It was February 2011. I have the tapes and the teachings. See, I'm these people's worst ever nightmare. I've got all this stuff. So right here from this pulpit, he said that in 2011, the Spirit of God's going to sweep through this nation and people are going to fall over in the streets. They're going to repent. They're going to be doing this. They're going to be doing that. All these different things. He said, this will be happening before the end of this year, 2011. People stood on these seats. Now, they were the old ones, so we didn't really mind that much. People stood on that seat and jumped up and down on the seats, cheering and yelling and screaming because finally, God was going to come and do what God has commissioned us to do and we were going to sit back and just watch it all well according to me it's 2015 and here we all still are are we going to wait any longer or shall we get out and do something ourselves Matthew 28 18 to 20 says We need to get out and do something ourselves. I will not embrace, next point, an eschatology that changes the nature of a good God. I don't believe God's all evil in judgment who not only hates sin but hates the sinner. I don't believe that. I don't believe God is waiting to burst out of heaven and bring judgment. On sinners, I believe God's crying out to us to go and reach them and save them from the judgment that will ultimately come. I don't believe God wants to judge anybody. I believe God wants everybody to know Jesus and get free from the sin and the bondage and the deception and the trappings therein. And he's called us to go out there and reach them with that. I refuse to embrace any mindset that celebrates bad news as a sign of the times and a necessary requirement for the return of Jesus. I guarantee you there'll be as many surprises in Jesus' second coming as there was in his first. And most of us will have big aspects of our theology ruined. I guarantee you, just like the fine men and women of God back then had their theology totally ruined by Jesus coming. Here's the one thing I do know about his return. The scriptures say it will be when we least expect it. So when I sit in my lounge room listening to why Jesus has to come this year at the fourth blood moon in September... And how it's absolutely clear and guaranteed. I say, well, here's one thing I know. He's not coming then. That's one thing I know. Because we all expect it. We're told it's going to happen. You can buy the book. It's been the biggest selling book, Christian book on Amazon for 12 months. 
I am writing, I have the book, I've read it. I'm writing him a letter in October. And I'm going to say, are you sending back all the millions of dollars you made on the sale of this book because it's failed? Surely, as a man of God and a leader, you're going to give the people back their money. Surely you're going to do that. So I know he's not coming back in September. No, not finally, two to go. I'm opposed to any doctrinal position that pushes the promises of God into a time zone that cannot be obtained in my generation and therefore takes away any responsibility I have to believe God for them in my lifetime. I believe God for every single promise in his scriptures and I join with the Apostle Paul. I'm not there yet. God help me. When he says in Ephesians 1, I wish you guys would wake up and see the power God has placed within you to do his bidding. Paul saying, I wish you'd see it. See, somehow Paul got a revelation of it and says, my gosh, you've invested all of that in us. Hudson got up this morning and worshipped God on the basis of the power of the Holy Spirit. And he lives in me and you individually in that degree. That's why the scriptures say that the prophets of old could only foresee this time and shake their head in wonder. They wished they could have been part of it. I'm going after everything I can get in Christ, including the greatest degree of transformation I can possibly cooperate with the Holy Spirit to produce in my life. And I want to see this nation transformed, and I want to see people around me transformed, and I want to see the glory of God flowing in society. And I can't find one verse that says that cannot happen in my lifetime. Can't find one. Final point. I do not believe that the last days are a time of judgment. Nor do I believe that God gave the church the right to call for wrath upon sinful cities. I do not believe that. Jesus rebuked Peter and John for saying, shall we call fire down on earth to burn these people because they rejected you? And Jesus said, you don't understand the nature of the kingdom of God. There is a day of judgment coming and it will be God who will judge humanity, not you and not me. And I thank God for that. John three seventeen is worth reading because I think we forget this. Hear the sound of those pages, isn't that nice? For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. I hate violence. I hate seeing people violated. I hate seeing all the things that come through the TV. And if you stick your head in around my lounge room, you may hear me railing judgment upon these people. But as I said last week, God's ways are not mine. So I have to hear his ways and conform to that, whether I like it or not. Because mercy triumphs judgment in the kingdom of God. And that 
will remain that way until Jesus returns in his time to deal with the people and the nations in his way. And he will not be asking for your advice or mine. However, the scriptures do teach we cooperate with him in it. So all I can say is, my gosh, I, must have, I would have undergone a huge transformation then than where I'm at today. God looked upon society after putting a rainbow in the air all those years ago to say, I will never do this again. And God says, judgment is going to have to come for sin. And it's going to be horrible. And it's going to be ugly. It's going to be the worst thing that has ever happened on this planet. And he pulled the whole thing down on himself. The whole thing. Every judgment, every bit of anger, every bit of wrath, all justified. He pulled it right down on himself. You and I, who are in Christ and live repentant lives, will never face that judgment. We're free. And we're home free. But God doesn't want the world to face it either. He doesn't want people damned to hell. He doesn't want societies that are producing evil and ugly and horrible things. He doesn't want young women being abused and making spectacles all over the TV and pornography and all that sort of stuff. He doesn't want any of that. But the answer is not in his hands per se. It's in his people who are in Christ with a vision of the kingdom of God and understanding the power of it. And why is there not to bring judgment but to bring mercy and reach out and change this world. And that sits with you and it sits with me. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are a loving God. Because the first recipients of your mercy, not your judgment, are all your people, us. So Lord, we just pray that you continue to call us and urge us and empower us to be the solution to all those things that we are complaining about, to realize we can change them. We can make our lives better. We can make the society better. Father, make our lives count. And when we are finally called to go and be with you, we want to think the legacy that you invested in us is still flowing in the next generation and the generations to come. We ask it, we cry out for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.